0: Hey, podcast listener, you're about to discover insider tips, tricks, and secrets to making more sales and converting more prospects into customers with email marketing. For more information about the email marketing podcast or the water responder guy, go to dropdeadcopy.com slash podcast. It's John McIntyre here, the order responder guy. I'm here with Brian Miller, a uh, expert on the uh, coronavirus situation, I'm told, um, coming out of uh, China. He works in China. They do some e-commerce fulfillment, a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, he reached out this week and he wanted to um, I know, I need to get on the phone, do a podcast like this. And uh, I've been looking for someone to talk to about the coronavirus uh, and just learn a bit more about how it's working uh, in the business world for someone who's really close to some kind of hotspot, because I'm definitely not close to a hotspot right now. Um, so yeah, so here we go. Brian, what's going on, man?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully, I can uh, give your audience a little bit of color about what happened in China uh, and what's happening now, so.
0: Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, before we get into, I guess, the specific coronavirus specifics, give us a little bit of a background on, um, you know, what are you, who are you, what do you do? <laughs> All that kind of stuff.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm an American. I'm a native of Connecticut in the U.S. Um, I've been living in China for the past ten years, and um, I've done uh, manufacturing. I used to work for one of the largest Chinese state-owned manufacturers um, in China. And uh, just recently, over the past uh, four years, I started my own e-commerce company selling Bluetooth speakers, and most recently, an e-commerce logistics company. So uh, the company is called Easy China Warehouse, and we basically help e-commerce sellers take their products from Chinese factories and distribute those products all around the world to other warehouses or to their end customer. So that's kind of what we do in China.
0: Got it. Nice. And how did you... How did you end up in China? I mean, we'll probably get to that with some of the coronavirus stuff. What took you to China? 10 years is a long time to spend in China.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It actually started at the other um, crisis we had. So in 2008... Um, I graduated university in the U S and at that time, prospects of jobs and things like that were not that, um, promising. Right. And so along with me, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, I actually uh, left the U S and started traveling around the world. Um, so I started in Europe and I spent a year there um, working a bit and traveling. And I had a friend in Taiwan at the time, and he told me, you got to come out to Asia. Uh, everything's happening here. The economy's growing like crazy and you'll love it. Um, and so I went from uh, basically uh, Europe to the Middle East and India, and then I flew to Taiwan. Um, and that's kind of how I first got introduced to Asia and once I started loving it there, I started to learn Mandarin, uh, Chinese, because they also speak Mandarin in Taiwan. And eventually, I moved to uh, Beijing to continue studying and start work. So that's kind of like the short, the short version of of, of almost two years of traveling.
0: Mm, okay, okay. And then, so what's interesting is, you know, now we're talking, and it's been what twelve, twelve years since the crisis, and now we're it seems like. From what I've read, is we're we're just going into it. I mean, the coronavirus is seems to be flattening out in some countries, but um, it seems like this is the start of a long, uh, you know, a whole sort of a huge thing. <laughs> Not just the coronavirus, but the economic repercussions of um, of everything as well. And we're overdue for an economic correction anyway. So, so I'm curious, what uh, what do you think? Like, what like are we? give me like sort of a let's start at the higher level like give me a broad overview of like what's going on maybe with the coronavirus and what we're um what we can kind of what's happened so far and what we can expect and then we can go a little bit deeper into the specifics
1: yeah so um just an overview like at least now we can go like now and then go back in the past to kind of see what happened in China. But, um, I would generally agree with what you said, like the economy will have some struggle going forward. So obviously the, uh, the curve and, and, and the infection rate and the deaths that, that will definitely go down. Um, but what we're seeing in China is consumers are still relatively cautious to go out and spend money. Um, And also with job losses and things like that, like, you know, they don't have as much money to spend. And so we're seeing pretty uh, severe effects in China uh, with bankruptcies. So a lot of bankruptcies of restaurants, of stores and shopping centers. Um, A lot of factories have gone on prolonged vacations because they just have no orders. And so we're slowly seeing the, the ripple effects of this occurring. Um, and we also see a lot of stores in China that are open, but they're basically bankrupt. So they haven't paid their rent. And once the landlord turns off the lights, uh, they'll have to shut down. So um, we're seeing definitely some severe effects. And I anticipate other countries will have the same more longer term effects to their economy as we, as we kind of move forward
0: right because it 's a bit like I mean the principle here or sort of like it 's sort of like a domino effect, right where it starts somewhere there 'd be a lot going on in China right now, and a lot of that might not be directly affecting people in the West, for example, but it will eventually because as the factory shuts down and then the landlord doesn 't have money, and then the landlord can 't pay his bills, and then the person who he 's paying his, his bills to can 't pay their bills, and it creates this sort of chain reaction effect that gradually goes around the entire world.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like, we're seeing it probably a little bit earlier than um, everyone else. But yeah, it's exactly what you said. So um, people are worried to go out, so they don't go to the restaurant. The restaurant um, doesn't have enough people, uh, so they have to start firing their employees and they have rent to pay. Uh, Eventually, when the landlord needs to collect the rent, they don't have enough money because their sales haven't been... uh, High enough uh, to sustain, and so they go bankrupt, and then the the landlord also doesn't have the money to pay his mortgage, right? And so you see this ripple effect kind of flow through the economy, and and it takes some time, right? It's not instant, so we see this happening over you know maybe uh, months, and um, I think in China we're still at a stage where it's going to get worse uh, before it gets better. And typically with China, they've been ahead of everyone else just because you know it originated here. And so what we see in China, we often see happen in some form, one way or another, in other countries as the virus progresses.
0: Right. Well, let's look at, let's look at the virus then. What, uh, give me a timeline or give me a rough idea. of When did it start for you? When did you start to notice things, and then how has it progressed up until now?
1: Yeah, so in China, at least, um, we, we can go back to the end of last year in December. Uh, that's when we started to hear a few news reports within China. They said, hey, there's this virus. Um, it's, it's something we've never seen before, and it's similar to SARS. So in 2003, there was a SARS outbreak in southern China and China kind of used it to, um, you know, uh, relate it to something that people already knew. And so people were a bit concerned in December that there was something going on. However, at the time it was reported that human to human transmission was not, uh, something people should worry about. And so at that time we heard about it, but we didn't really know what was happening, nor did we like, did anyone really get scared? You know? Um, It really happened at the end of December. On December 31st, the Chinese government made an official announcement that, hey, we have this thing, the coronavirus, and there is human-to-human transmission, and we should be concerned. And so the first two weeks in China, we saw a very quick ramp up of like the first week, maybe half of the people were wearing face masks. And within two weeks uh, in January, you had about all of the population wearing face masks uh, when they went out, out into public. And it actually became a law at the end of the month on the 26th of January in Guangdong, which is the province I'm in, that you had to wear a face mask in order to go into public. So if you wanted to go to the supermarket, um, or, or a mall or shopping center, they actually wouldn't let you into the facility unless you were wearing uh, a face mask. And, um, at the same time, at the end of January, we started to see a ramp up of temperature checks. So by temperature check, I mean, uh, they would have one of those thermometer guns. And in order to enter any public place, you needed to get your temperature checked to make sure you didn't have a fever before you entered. Mm. Uh, so that was like at bank's, at my apartment, even till today, I still have to get a temperature check every time I walk into my apartment complex. Yeah, um, All the malls would shut down all the doors and open just one. And you had to walk through that door and get a temperature check in order to enter the facility. Um, they did roadblocks. So at toll booths there were temperature checks. So it was really, you know, within a, within a month you could say the ramp up of masks to temperature checks to uh, starting registrations of people's movement started in China. Mm. So they and
0: so this is just in January
1: yeah this is just in January, so this is like if you can imagine this, where I live is in Shenzhen, which is the city that borders Hong Kong in the south um, and our city is about a thousand miles like sixteen hundred kilometers uh due south of Wuhan, which was the place where the outbreak happened so even that far it wasn 't even like we were you know relatively close, we were relatively far away um, and still these measures were being taken. As January went on and as we saw infection spread pretty uh, rapidly uh, within China during that month. Um, So, so yeah, there was noticeable fear throughout society and, um, January 25th was when the Chinese government, uh, well, when there's Chinese New Year this year. And the Chinese government basically told all the people to not travel. So Chinese New Year is usually a big time in China where domestically people travel throughout the country. And they have a lot of events to celebrate the New Year. And the government says no one should travel and all the events are canceled. And so we saw like the government um, react quite... Um, you know, severely because this is the most important time of the year and they canceled everything. So we knew it was something, um, let's say, uh, pretty severe once they started to do these things.
0: Right. And how did it, I'm curious how it felt for you, like, cause you're in the middle of this, right? People in America in Australia and Australia and in the West are freaking out about this stuff and you're in China. So how did you feel as all this starts, did you take it seriously at first or when did it kind of click for you that this is going to be big and how did it feel?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was like in the beginning, people were wearing masks and it's something I've never experienced before. So I was a little worried, but I wasn't, let's say scared. Um, but there was one point in the beginning, um, uh, in January, actually, Shenzhen and Hong Kong, there's a border, uh, a, a customs border. And there's a lot of traffic between those borders because there's a lot of commerce that that occurs between those borders. And at one point at the end of the... Um, Of January, they actually closed. There's a few border crossings uh, between both places and they closed all but one of the border crossings. And at that time, that was really something that scared me is that they started to close borders. And um, that was when I was actually personally scared. And also in China, they created an app where you can see how far you are from uh, confirmed infections. So as as nice as that is to know like where you are and how many confirmed infections are around you it's also pretty terrifying at the same time right you can open a map and you can literally see on this map <laughs> like people near you within a within a kilometer or within a few hundred meters that are actually infected and that's where it really brought the fact that this thing is very close to me and that's when I started to get really concerned for sure mm.
0: And do you live alone or you have a family and kids or what's your situation?
1: Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm single. Um, so I live alone. Um, but during that time we were also staying, um, inside generally, uh, I was going to my warehouse actually every day because I was worried that as crazy as this sounds, I didn't want our shipments to stop from our fulfillment center. (laughs) So I actually kept going to make sure that everything was going out, Um, But most people during that time were not. And it even got to the point where the government would increase the quarantine measure depending on how far you were from infected cases. So I had a Belgian friend that lives in the city and he was given two tickets a week. And he could use that ticket to leave his apartment complex and buy food and buy, you know, things that he needed to survive. And that was it, you know, two times a week he could leave and the rest of the time he was basically forced to stay in his apartment. Um, and that was for them to kind of control the flow of people near those infected areas. So it got really scary in the fact that, you know, the government in in some ways was not allowing people to, to go out. Um, and we had to believe that like things were really bad outside if if they were going that far <clears throat> right, and then was this the
0: kind of was this the peak for you, or did it get worse after this point
1: yeah, so um after the Chinese government actually extended the Chinese New Year, so it's usually about a week, and they extended it to February tenth so that was like an effort to try to um reduce the the, the the travel of, of people and the, the interaction of, of and the flow of people uh, coming in contact with each other. Um, but even after the Chinese New Year, we had new restrictions on all um, commercial facilities, so factories and warehouses. And we needed to follow new safety protocols in order for them, for the government, to allow us to open. So my facility needed to take temperature checks of our employees every day. And if anyone had a fever, we had to report it to the government. Um, We had to have the proper um, uh, protection equipment, so masks and gloves, if necessary, for the employees. And we had to disinfect the facility every day. This is kind of the basics of it. And we needed a Chinese health inspector to come to our warehouse to let us commence work. And so, when we finished Chinese New Year and we tried to get back to work, a lot of people had trouble you know restarting their companies, and a lot of migrant workers had trouble getting back to the city's two factories. So they were very restrictive even after the Chinese New Year, and it start, and it kept getting more restrictive actually as time went into February. So that was a signal to us that actually the virus situation was not actually improving but it was probably getting worse and they were taking more extreme measures to try to contain it
0: <clears throat> right okay so that's february and now we're in middle of april so what's happened in the last i'm just trying to get an understanding of, of all that's happened in china up until this point and then we can look at what's next but what's happened since the yeah. middle of february
1: Yeah. So we saw basically, as I said, because of those new uh, regulations, we saw companies really struggle to um, get started um, and open. And so I would say for most of February, you saw companies slowly getting back to work and still a lot of people were working from home. So I know in a lot of the places around the world, it's like we have a lot of people working remotely. And that's the same thing that happened in China. Uh, people that worked in an office usually stayed home and worked, and some of the factory or people that needed to be on the ground, they would go in, but with much higher restrictions than normal. And so you know, until the end of February, we didn't really see much movement on production or factories you know starting up work. And even if we did, we saw like a very small Uh, let's say, skeleton crew of people that were really not able to uh, meet full capacity at all the factories. Um, But March has been a lot better. So uh, the government has slowly kind of relaxed these restrictions. We still have temperature checks everywhere. Um, We still have to do sometimes some registrations at places to tell people where we've been. But overall, they've relaxed them and people have started in March to go out um, to you know, restaurants have opened. So people are starting to go out to eat um, and big shopping malls are open. So people are starting to go out and spend money. But at this time, we still don't see any of the places that have large congregations of people open. So movie theaters are not open. Uh, no sporting events have resumed. Um, so we still see like the, the, the whole, you know, society as a whole is not really to a hundred percent yet, even till today. Um yeah. And and even I know some friends who own restaurants within um China and they say that their sales have not rebounded to what they used to be. So they're only, you know, 60, you know, they're down 60% or 70% in sales and they're not seeing anything rebound. So um, they're struggling because they're unable to cover their costs and they have rent payments due. So this is where we kind of started, where we're starting to see the effects economically of the um virus take its toll, and we've seen a lot of closed shops due to bankruptcies as well, so we're starting to see that flush through the system
0: right okay and that's that to me that's almost more worrying because that's going be I think that's gonna be much bigger as that kind of thing spreads around the world over the coming i mean i'm somewhere I was about I it was to do with two thousand and eight that whenever the crash happened, it took something like 18 months from whenever the problem is found for everything to actually crash because it takes that long for it to just filter throughout the whole system.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think people are being relatively, um, I'm, I'm not like a pessimist, but I think people are overly optimistic that it will, um, uh, it will go through each country and then it will end. Um, but I don't see a point where we get out of this 100% economically until we have some type of cure or vaccine. So, for sure, in the future, like deaths will go down and 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 hospitals will have breathing room. Um, but it will always, you'll always have this kind of, um, let's say, fight with the virus uh, in the economy of expansion and contraction. Um, we've seen it in Singapore happen. And also Hong Kong. So, Singapore, you know, throughout the whole thing has had it relatively under control. And um, you see them opening their economy. And they just had another kind of wave that's happening now. And so now they're trying to squeeze the, econ- the, the the society in order to try to get a hold of the virus. And that happened also with Hong Kong. They had it relatively under control in the beginning. And then just recently, they had some inbound cases that spread a bit, and they had to pull back on the economy to kind of like keep the virus in check. And so, um, you know, it's also happening a bit in China. We've seen a few small outbreaks um, in the north of China uh, on the border to Russia. So so it's definitely something that um, I'm concerned about because if if we continue to have these, it should scare consumers enough to not go outside and not spend money. And that will ultimately hurt. Um, global economies uh, a lot, you know? So, so that's what I'm like seeing as we try to get out of this virus is that people, first of all, we're not done, but also uh, consumers are very, very, very cautious. Mm. It's interesting because,
0: you know, I'm in Australia at the moment and um, I think they've slowed it down. uh, They flatten the curve or whatever the term is and they're doing pretty well. But, you know, it's been on lockdown for a month or something like that. So everyone's a bit antsy and wants to get outside. And there's that whole, you know, there's the risk, right? You you relax the restrictions too quickly. It's going to blow up again pretty fast. And then the the restrictions come back on. And so, but then you're faced with this thing where you kind of have to let it, because you could try and let it die out, right? If we all just stayed inside for a month, everyone around the world, maybe that it'd work. But if it exists anywhere in the world, then it's almost like eventually, everyone has to get it so that we all can build some kind of immunity to it it's really just about slowing it down if i don't even know if it's possible for it to die out completely at this point
1: yeah i completely agree as long even if you can control it within your border well there's probably another country um that it's spreading in. And because we're such a globalized world, like what's stopping those, you know, at some point when we resume kind of international air travel and even domestic travel uh, within our own countries, you know, what's preventing that virus from regaining its strength and spreading more, more rapidly when we do that? And so, I think that's what, you know, people are so happy that like the the curve is bent, but in my opinion, like we've kind of just started, like the hard part is ahead of us, which is how do we, how do we manage that people can try to live a semi-normal life and not be worried every time they go grab a bite to eat that, you know, they have to think the whole time about, does my waiter have the virus? Does the chef have the virus? Like that's not really a pleasant, uh, experience. If every time you go out to eat, you've got to think that way. Right. And so ultimately probably people just won't go out to eat until they feel comfortable. Um, so I think this is like the huge challenge that the world is going to face And economically, I don't see the US, uh, specifically the US, but other countries as well, being able to just give out free uh, money or stimulus forever. Um, So at some point, you know, there's going to be a time where, you know, uh, people will feel real, real pain. And I think that's ahead of us for sure.
0: Mm.
1: Me too. Me
0: too. I mean, yeah, this whole like lending out or, you know, these stimulus things. it's classic like you read some of these book, you know, economics books micro micro macroeconomics and it's like that the money comes from somewhere you know like someone's got to pay for it somewhere <laughs> somewhere along the line you know it's like
1: people don't understand that nothing comes for free um Exactly. Yeah. Like even for, for me, I mean, I don't know exactly the programs that are happening in other places like Europe and Australia and, and, and other places, but, but for sure for the U S they're giving out a lot of free money and people feel good now. And that's great. And I understand why they're doing that to kind of support people during this tough time. But like, we have to pay for it sometime. Like it's either me or maybe my kids or maybe my kids, kids, like someone has to pay the bill. Right. Yeah. And so, um, that's the concerning thing for me is like, when does it end and how long do we, um, try to fix our debt problem by adding more debt, at least from a U.S. perspective. Right. Um, but it's similar in other countries as well. And, um, and and how do you effectively give money out to businesses and prop them up when maybe they were poorly run companies, right? So yeah. um, is the economy really capitalistic? Uh, is it not? Um, core capitalist principles say that we should let the, the weak ones die and the strong ones survive. Um, but in this case, everyone survives, right? And so how do you balance that? I'm not sure. But it also distorts the uh, normal economic forces that occur and price assets in the economy. So I think it's also something people should, you know, keep in tune to because, uh, it feels as though things are not really, um, being priced effectively in the market.
0: Right. Well, this is, you know, I've been thinking about this, you know, whether it's for businesses or even just, um, people at home, if people are living paycheck to pay, I'm sure there's some people out there who they absolutely have to, they have no other choice, but to live paycheck to paycheck because of their situation. But I imagine that most people, just because the culture that we're in is a culture of you know, consumption. It's all about, I don't think people are aware of it, but there's this sort of unexamined assumption. You just spend as much as you can. You use credit to buy things, including things that don't actually yeah. produce any uh, income. And so you've got all these uh, families, you know, people out there, as well as businesses that have been uh, terrible at managing the money. They don't save their money. They buy too much stuff on credit and it's like, yeah, you can bail them out, but then they never learn the lesson. And then the next time they're going to yep. keep just spending the money, keep using credit, keep buying stuff that doesn't like uh, non-productive asset or not even an asset, but non-productive things. And it, it just makes the bubble keep going. If, eventually. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's like someone has to be the bill, but eventually like these people are going to wake up. They got to be like, Oh shit, you know, sooner or later. So same with businesses, you know, it's like you can get away with a bad business model, like you're saying, or a bad, bad operations for for a while, but eventually it's going to bite you. Um,
1: Right. Yeah. And I I think actually, you know, I, I think people also look too negatively on businesses failing, like, you know, during these downturns, businesses failing is good for the economy, essentially in the fact that it wipes out, um, people that were irresponsible. Right. And, um, and it, and, and that's the problem with propping them up is it doesn't de-incentivize them to be more responsible business owners, to run a more responsible company and to not take on debt so irresponsibly. And if these people, um, that run businesses never get hurt for this behavior, I think it also creates the wrong incentives within economies, right? And so that's like one of my concerns as just like a small business owner is um, what's the benefit to running a responsible company if... And it's not true for every company, right? I mean, some are going to... Even if you ran it responsibly, you're still kind of fail during this time. But, but I think it, it goes into question, like, you know, if I ran a really responsible company and others don't, but they still get bailed out, what's the point of, of doing that? You know? Um, so, so yeah, it brings up a lot of questions for me as well. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, the funny thing is like in Australia, which it might be similar in the U S but you get these support packages where I think right now people who are getting like a sort of social security, I guess you guys would call it, but you know, like a payment from the government because they can't find a job or something like that. All of those things are getting doubled at the moment for those people as if they need more money to spend. And it's this really interesting thing where it's like the people who deserve that money the most are the people who don't need it and the people who need it those people who, are, who can't be bothered to get a job and it's just however however many hundreds of thousands of thousands of them who don't who aren't don't even actually need it they're just lazy they're just using it as sort of a cop-out because they can't be bothered to get a job and then you're giving them more money it's it's a waste of money you should give that money to the warren buffett so the people who know how to deploy the capital properly so that the economy as a whole is going to grow
1: <laughs> rather than yeah yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, I agree even in the US they give um the federal government is giving $600 a week in unemployment benefits. And if you add the state benefits, sometimes you could make more money in unemployment by doing nothing than you could at your previous job. Yeah. And so What's the incentive to work when the unemployment benefits are actually better than actually working at that job? And if you get money for that and don't provide any productivity to the economy by not working, you've got to think that that money um, is not being allocated well and um, there will be—I mean, I don't know if I'm smart enough to know—but it seems like there will be adverse effects in the future from this type of um, stimulus, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so that—that's what's concerning because I think it's interesting to tie it back from uh, to to China in that there's actually no stimulus being given out. Surprisingly, <laughs> I actually tell my friends that China seems a bit more capitalistic in this sense than the U.S. is being. Because in China, if you're weak here, you have a small company, you fail. And if you're strong, you survive. And they have not given any um, checks out to any of the population. Uh, No unemployment, no stimulus, almost no stimulus to business. Uh, We've gotten a tiny bit, but it's almost negligible. Um, and they are going with the premise of like core capitalism, which is the weak fail, the strong survive, and you rebuild your economy on that premise, you know? And I think it's interesting to see what China's doing because, um, in, I think it's better long term for the economy and they'll probably have a much more vibrant, um, stronger recovery than the other countries that use a lot of um, debt to to push the economy out. That's just my kind of perspective, but we don't know how it will pan out. But I think it will be interesting to see how China works with this model and how other countries will work with their model of giving money out to to mm. companies and individuals. Mm, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, you or know, based on what you've seen in China, what do you think's gonna happen, you know, in the US? Or what's happening right now and what do you think is gonna keep you know happen next?
1: Well I mean China's, China's lucky because their population is more of a saver population, so people save money. Um, as you said before, like in, in the West, you know we're very consumer driven and so we take on a lot of debt and we spend everything we have. And so in general, like this approach in China is more manageable just because people have more savings and they can weather um, a, a longer term time of of downturn um but I'm, i'm not trying to make this claim but but i think it's something that people should uh think about i don't think it will come true but it could um Aversely affect the global kind of uh, power uh, in the world. If if China does and they're able to move out of the crisis more effectively from a medical perspective like the virus and an economic perspective, um, they might be a stronger power uh, coming out of the virus than we ever thought um and they might catch up to the US's economy faster than we expected um of course there's other things that we're seeing some nationalism where people aren't happy with China's response uh some of the data that's coming from China and uh there's some kind of negative implications for China in that regards um will people want to do business with China in the future um will people want to buy from China in the future as nationalism increases and global tensions kind of increase, right? Um, We saw that with the trade war, uh, the U.S. and China kind of having some disagreements and tensions rising. And I think throughout the coronavirus and after, this will only amplify those tensions, right? And so um, I don't know what the result is, but I think at least the U.S.-China relationship will become more pol- polarized. Um, however, at the same time, might, China might come out stronger economically than we ever imagined. And so, um, these are the things that I'm personally thinking about, um, just to like understand my business and how the world's going to work, you know, in the future.
0: Mm, well, I've got a friend of mine in uh, in Thailand right now. He he um, has an e-commerce company. They do bike, bike related stuff out of China. And, uh, every time I talk to him about China, he's like, dude, China's already won. China won like five years ago. Just the rest of the world doesn't know it yet. They're so far ahead of the U S technologically. And in so many, this is his, this is what he's saying. I've never been there. So I don't really have enough, um, knowledge to, uh, to, to sort of have an opinion, to be honest, but that's what he, he's been saying. to me. <laughs> China won, China, China's already won. It won a long time ago. And it's no one knows yet. Um,
1: which, yeah, I think it's an interesting perspective. It's a bold claim from your friend. But I don't I I wouldn't say they won, but I wouldn't disagree the fact that I think, you know, China has been the sleeping giant for a while. And all of a sudden they became a very strong and powerful influence in the world. And this virus will probably make them even stronger in relative You know, relative to other countries and more influential. And so I think I think people are definitely they've always underestimated China. But even during this crisis, I think they're also underestimating them Mm. because I think I think the U.S. will not be able to handle the virus as well as China in terms of transmission. And so it will be a bit more detrimental to the U.S. economy than it will be China because China has been able to very effectively um, test its population and take the people that were infected and isolate them from the rest of the population in order to reduce transmission and reduce the number of people that had it. Um, And I see other Western countries, specifically also the U.S., having trouble with this. Um, and so, therefore, I think it's going to be a longer road to recovery for the U.S. and other countries than it was for China.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. This is so interesting. We can go on for ages here. What are some? Um, one thing that's been fascinating me is just the the amount of conspiracy theories that are floating around right now. As people look for, you know, certainty and and uh, just the stuff. You know, I've got close. Uh, friends, uh, family members, some of them that are into this stuff. And it's amazing how like they're so explosive at the moment, you know, it's whether it's the fear or the uncertainty, some and people are just getting so drawn to some crazy stuff. So uh, what do you think about all this stuff? What are some of the inaccurate things that you've been um, hearing, seen in the news, heard from friends, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've also seen a lot of theories, <laughs> and this type of uh, pinned down, or things like this seem to like kind of create a lot of different theories that people kind of run with. Um, the thing is, I don't think we have definitive proof uh, exactly how it came to be, right? We do know it originated in China, um, but we haven't seen any data um, to show any theory is correct, right? And so I think it's um, a bit dangerous to run around promoting um, theories when we're not sure, and it can influence, um, you know, people's minds and, and their 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 nationalistic feel and it could, you know, create racism that we've seen in the U in the U S we've seen it in China. We've seen it. So in the, in the beginning, we've seen like Asian Americans were kind of a bit discriminated against when they were going into maybe Ubers or things like that. And we've seen the same in China. I had a friend last week that was denied entry, an American guy into a restaurant in China. Hmm. And so, um, I think it's slightly dangerous in that we're all we all are humans, right? And we and and the virus doesn't really <laughs> discriminate between culture or nationality. It doesn't actually care. And so, um we need to be cognizant that uh everyone's still people and uh we kind of are in this together, right? I mean, even if we don't believe it, uh as as humankind, we have to kind of like work together. Uh, To try to reduce transmission so that we can eradicate it. Um, But I I agree with you that some of the theories have pushed negative implications towards other countries, and therefore we view other countries negatively. Um, But for me, I just want to wait until there's some type of official consensus, and then I'll kind of believe it. I'm just discounting any theory yet, until we have more concrete evidence of something that is likely I, I I can't say one or the other would be correct. You know what I mean? Um, I've seen them all, uh, but I don't want to pass judgment on anyone because I just don't know enough facts personally, you know?
0: Right. And this is a, I mean, I, I guess that's, I mean, that, I think that's why people, you know, end up getting drawn to these theories anyways, because they don't like the uncertainty or that's it's very hard to deal with. But we just don't know, you know, about a lot of this stuff. We don't know how, you know, exactly where it's com- coming from.
1: Um, yeah. And also I think people, at least politicians in power, um, if they made a mistake, oftentimes we find um, them using temp- some type of theory to shift blame. Um And I'm just saying that in a broad sense, right? So we have to be careful about what people are saying and how true it is and don't deflect blame if, if, if there is some blame to be had. Right. So we, we do see this happening. Like no one wants to take the blame for it, regardless of which side you're on. (laughs) And so we start to see theories come out in order to try to shift blame so that the, the populace doesn't feel as though, you know, their leader wronged them or their, you know, their politician wronged them. And so, um, I think we're seeing this more and more as time goes, time goes on and it's going to get worse, I think, because at the end of this, you know, then we're going to have the blame game. Who, who whose fault is it? Right. Um, so I think that's still to come, uh, what we'll see.
0: Mm. Well, who do you, you know, how, how do you, when you're hearing some of these theories, whether it's reading the news or uh, hearing it from friends and family or on Facebook and social media, how do you, uh, filter out the stuff that's, probably false. And just, you know, it's just not worth even bothering with. And from the stuff that's, all right, this is probably legit. I'm going to pay attention to this.
1: Man, it's, it's so hard today, especially with social media, as we know, like, um, the power of like platforms like Facebook or any, any social platform where your friends will post, um, a news story. And because there 's someone you know you you give that news story, you trust that source right because you know x person but you don 't know where that came from and so i i 've tried to not um, follow a lot of that news that is spread through social media because I think it 's relatively dangerous. And I try to look at more credible news outlet sources and also look from both sides, so I'll read you know the left and the right, and I'll read the one that's more left, you know the news station, the one that's more right and then um I think it's important by knowing both sides uh Opinion or both sides' position, then you can look at all of the data sources and try to make your own judgment. Um, and that's what I try to do. Take, you know, three or five different sources, they all are leaning different ways. Listen to everyone's point and try to make my own judgment. Um, and I think that's what people should try to do more in the days that we have so much spread of. The news articles that we cannot verify, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, that's, you know, I've been telling people that if you've got a, uh, someone asked me this morning actually, they're t- talking about a video that they saw on Facebook last night about, I think it was Bill Gates, the one world government and the one world currency and, you know, that whole, so that's one theory, right? And um, one thing that I use is I'm like, man, if it sounds, really cool like almost like oh wow that's that's incredible it's probably false a lot of this stuff that's very (laughs) sensational and like you kind of want to believe in it and you kind of get sucked into it it's probably not true it might be true and maybe some of these things will turn out to be true but most of them won't so you know i think this is people say the truth is stranger than fiction but i think sometimes it's actually a lot more boring It could be that someone made a mistake and it's really someone, you know, at the animal farm or whatever the, the, one of those theories is right. They, you know, didn't put the animal in the pen properly. And then this happens. That's not a very good story though. So no one passes that one around.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think also people should be, should know how like and be cognizant about how, like a lot of the algorithms work, right? So Facebook likes to give you content that you like. And so you end up only getting served content that you kind of agree with. Right. Yeah. And so it's important to like jump out, take a step back and, and also read content that you don't agree with, right? And that's the only way that you can get a clear perspective on on an issue and make your own kind of judgment. Like if yeah. we only read what we believe, then we'll believe that forever, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's important for people to think about too.
0: Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of... Um... One thing I did a few years ago was it sort of went down the, I don't know what you call it, like a critical thinking rabbit hole. Or, there's, you know, There's all these books, right, where it studies in um, psychology and cognitive biases like um, confirmation bias and various different sort of decision-making shortcuts that the human brain takes. So there's lots of these books, right? One, one of my favorite ones was You Are Not So Smart, um, which is all about these different things. There's a whole bunch of them. Another one's Thinking Fast and Slow. But... I think having gone through some of that, it becomes, it becomes a little bit easier to see the, maybe to see through some of these theories is cause you, like you mentioned, like the thing on Facebook, it's just straight confirmation bias where people are, if people are only reading the information, people already only tend to read the information that confirms their beliefs, but then Facebook takes that to the next level. Um, Right. You know, so that's another thing I, I recommend appear. No one's written, ever seems to want to do it, but you know, it's put in some, put in some time and effort <laughs> and go and read about critical thinking and cognitive biases and fallacies and all of that, and then see how much you want to believe in some of these crazy theories.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we should also, yeah, as I've said, just like remember that we all are people. Right. Um, and you know, whether, whether it came from China, uh, it, well, it did come from China, but like, uh, you know, if you meet a Chinese person on the street, they didn't like mean to like pass it to you. Right. Like they, <laughs> they didn't like try to like do this in a, in a, in a negative way. They're just a citizen in that country too. That was also affected by it. Right. Um, so, so yeah, it's important to, to think of it that way as well.
0: Yeah it's it's probably separating out like a person did it or a per, you know if some person may have made a mistake and now this happened and you know it's a person it doesn't mean all of china's like that or that china's conspiring again. even if like the chinese government had some kind of plot to take down the west or some crazy thing like even that's still only a handful of people at the top of the government it, it doesn't mean most chinese people right. are, are like that or want that or care about that at all and so i like that i like that attitude
1: yeah. Yeah. And what
0: about um uh, just to finish up, what do you think um how long do you think it's gonna to take to recover? Or will we recover? And if so, how long will it take China and the rest of the world to get back from this?
1: Yeah, so I, I think like if I if I look at it really um logically that I don't think that we get out of this uh, until we have a cure or a vaccine. And I don't mean that, you know, people will keep dying forever and we'll never be able to reduce the load on our healthcare system. We will, and deaths will go down and transmission will go down. Um, But I think like overall, there'll be this overarching concern for consumers if the virus is still spreading somewhere in the world, right? And we'll have kind of flashes of it um, in places, uh, you know, throughout the world until we get something that will stop it medically. Um, and so does that mean we're going to be sitting in our house for, until we have a vaccine? I don't think so, but it does mean, I think that our lives are going to change a bit, at least until we do have that vaccine. And also um, the economy is not going to do as well as we hope just because people are not going to spend money because they're not going to be able to go out as much. Um, So I think at least for business owners, it's important to think to just be a bit more conservative um, during this time and maybe uh, just wait a little bit to see before investing a lot in the future of your business. And like now just to see what happens. Right. Um, that's what I'm doing for my business. It's just kind of waiting. It doesn't cost a lot for us to just wait a month and see how things go. And, um, that's what we're doing. And that's what I would recommend like other business owners do is just, you know, take a breather and just see what happens.
0: Yeah. Love it. Cool. Awesome, Brian. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show, mate. And um, this has been good. There's lots to talk about. I thought we could go on for a while. I just, I love trying to understand how everything's floating around in this um, whole sort of crisis. Before we go, though, if people want to learn more about you and uh, what you're up to in China uh, with the uh, fulfillment, where is the best place for them to, um, to do that and maybe contact you if they want to talk to you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, They can go to our website at EasyChinaWarehouse.com. If they'd like to just get in contact with me me directly, I'd be happy to answer anyone's question uh, about China, anything about China. Uh, My email is Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at EasyChinaWarehouse.com. So those are the two places to to find more about us. Fantastic. Cool.
0: (laughs) All right, Brian, I'll, uh, I'll put those in the show notes and uh, people can go there to uh, dropdeadcopy.com to get those and um, click the links and go reach out. So thanks again for coming on the show, mate.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me.
0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you want to become a well-paid freelance copywriter so you can live life on your terms, check out my webinar on how I get paid up to $10,000 to write simple, fun emails. And I'll even show you how I got started with no experience, no connections, and no formal writing training. To get the training, go to www.themcmethod.com slash webinar. That's www.themcmethod.com slash webinar.